Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. We have a big show, so I'm not gonna mess around at the top here. Let's get right at it. Later on the program, Chris Wilson stops by to talk about his new podcast. He's a comedian and improviser best known for his work with Second City. His podcast is called This Time It's Different, and the premise is really cool. Each episode is done in a completely different genre of either a popular existing podcast format or he creates his own new format. It's really cool stuff. We'll find out all about it later in the show. We'll also find out who his podcast partner is. First, though, let's meet Brad Frazier. Brad is one of Canada's best-known playwrights. His work, plays like Poor Superman, Unidentified Human Remains, and The True Nature of Love, and Kill Me Now have been produced worldwide in many languages with highly successful runs everywhere from Toronto and New York to Sydney and London. They've been adapted into films, and Time Magazine has named several of them the best plays of their respective years. His work often includes frank depictions of sexuality, drug use, and violence, and so does his newest book. It's a memoir called All the Rage, now available wherever you buy fine books. I began our conversation by asking Brad Fraser if he set out to write an informal gay history from a Canadian perspective. That was part of the reason why the publishers were interested was because there hadn't been a Canadian book. There had been a great many American books written during the plague and after the plague about dealing with AIDS, but there wasn't a lot from our point of view. And I felt it was really important to uh, remind, a, a remind people, particularly young people right now, of what we had gone through in our history, but also to finally be able to acknowledge and mourn those people that I lost who were friends of mine. And also, you know, as an artist and particularly as a theater artist, we lost a great many theater people during that time. And so being able to write about them and, and you know, bring some of those personalities back to life, as it were, were was really important to me. Well, there are powerful moments in the book where someone uh, who we've gotten to know a little bit, you've written about them, uh, they pass away. And there's one, and I'm, uh, forgive me, I can't remember the person's name, uh, but at least one where there was no funeral. The family didn't want a funeral. You weren't there. You weren't able to pay your final respects, which yes. must have been heartbreaking. That That's heartbreaking, but it also was just kind of uh, the nature of my life at the time. I mean, the, the ironic thing was my greatest successes were happening during this period, and I was busier than I had ever been in my life, and I was f flying all over the world. So literally, I was mourning people I lost, mostly alone in hotel rooms in foreign countries and cities that I didn't live in. And that kind of thing. And a lot of the people, a lot of the stories are, are about me getting phone calls while I'm doing that kind of thing, uh, telling me someone is lost and not being able to, to be with them or to speak to them. And uh, I finally decided, and I mentioned this in the book, that I, I thought I would save my mourning. I would hang on to, all, you know, people would say you should mourn, you should let go, you should have closure. And I thought, I don't want closure. I don't want to mourn. I want to be, stay angry. I want to stay connected. I want to stay loud about what's happening. And I want people to know that. Um, and I'll, I'll mourn about it someday in the future. And that really happened while I was writing the book. Well, that's it. Is the book cathartic? You, you say uh, that relief from heartbreak and depression came from creativity for right. you. And I wonder if this book is kind of, at this stage anyway, kind of the end product of that mourning process that you uh, started a long time ago and never let go of. 
Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I don't know if it's the end process, but it's certainly a part of the process and it's a more cathartic uh, part of the process. And I'll tell you honestly, I, I mean, I wept a great deal when I was writing this book. I mean, I, I allowed memories and feelings to come up that I hadn't allowed to surface for 20 or 30 years in some cases. So it was a, it was a really hard book to write. And it wasn't just the deaths of the people I knew. It was also looking at my past. It was looking at my childhood. It was examining my family life and doing all those things that uh, I suppose one does in late middle age as we start to wrap up our lives and start thinking about, you know, what is our legacy going to be and how much time is there ahead of us compared to behind us. And all of that figured into the writing of this book. So to say it was cathartic is really a very big understatement. Let's talk then about your early years. Uh, you were raised uh, in a series of motels and hotels by teenage parents, uh, abusive, there were drugs and drinking involved. Um, tell me how that forms you. Uh, one of the words that frequently gets used if you, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if it's in the book, I'm sure it is, or at least the spirit of it is. Uh, but one of the things when you read about you, read articles about you is, well, he's confrontational. He's, uh, that's a word that comes up frequently. Um, right. Tell me if that is an offshoot of the way that you were raised. Yeah, I think that's definitely an offshoot of the way I was raised. I think it's uh, the result of my troubled relationship with my father, who was physically abusive and quite a bully. And that when I finally decided him at 13, at, when I finally decided at 13 years old that I would stand up to him and I didn't care what he did to me, uh, that was a huge watershed moment in my life because I essentially lost my fear and respect of adults at that point. So as I went into high school, as I started to explore uh, who I was and my gay self and my artist self and that kind of thing, I had been pretty much disabused of the notion that adults were going to be in any way a benign influence in my life. And therefore, I had to take care of myself. I had to make my own decisions and I had to stand up to myself. So even very early in my writing career, um, people would say, you know, you have to compromise. And I would say, I'm not afraid of compromise. What I'm afraid of take is, is having what's unique about me taken away. And I don't think that's a compromise. So I had to fight to hang on to my vision of my plays and the way I saw things, often because people found it too dark or too nihilistic, but I was basing it on what I had experienced growing up. And so I, I, I tried to remain as true to that as I possibly could. You're listening to my interview with Brad Fraser. His memoir, All the Rage, is available now wherever you buy books. Your first play was when you were 17. And tell me a little bit about it. And when you saw it performed on stage, was that kind of that moment where you say, well, this is it. This is, this is what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. Uh, that was the first play I saw. And yes, it was, it was a very, um, I had seen, you know, like there'd been school tours and that kind of thing. I think in the eighth grade, we did a, a lip sync concert performance of certain numbers from Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> but I had never seen an actual play, uh, particularly done in that way, which was a very stripped down black box kind of productions with people playing multiple characters and, and no scenery changes. It was all left to your imagination. And when I saw that, I said, 
this I can do, this I understand, there's something I innately get about this and I, I want to explore it and I want to understand how to do it. I originally had studied to be an actor, but as I was working, you know, I was reading all the plays that were written for young people and I thought, oh my God, I could write a better play than this. And I did, I wrote a, a short one act called Two Pariah at a Bus Stop in a Large City Late at Night. And uh, one of those plays that when you've read the title, you've essentially seen it. Um, and it won the Alberta Culture Playwriting Competition, and they shipped me off to Banff to work with a lot of uh, uh, a lot of other Canadian playwrights. I was 18; they were all considerably older, and I felt like uh, the only David Bowie among a, a great many Gordon Lightfoots. Like they were all writing about, you know, uh, rural concerns or being on the farm or downtown Toronto comedies, and I wanted to write, you know, sexy, scary stuff that really exploited what the theater can do. So they didn't quite know what to do with me but they did say anyway kid we think you've got a lot of talent we're not sure we can help you but keep doing what you're doing it'll take you somewhere i love the title of that play uh the the two pariah at a bus stop in a large city late at night it's something to me that an 18 year old would think was super super cool yes exactly i don't <laughs> think it's so cool necessarily anymore but at the time i thought it was the coolest title in the world and it did kind of set the precedent for longer titles which mm. by the time i wrote unidentified human remains and the true nature of love people were ready for <laughs> now you say in the book that you have a freakishly good memory and i wonder when you're writing a memoir like this how important absolutism is the the absolute truth or filter through your memory things are going to maybe look and feel a little different 30 years later than they actually were um did you uh double check things with people did you do interviews did you uh um you know research go through old diaries or was it just from your freakishly good memory and the stories will play out as they play it was mostly from my memory. I mean, first of all, a lot of people that I might have consulted about certain things are dead, so I wasn't able to go back to them. Uh, but also, I do have a very good memory, and I don't know why I have such a good memory. I mean, I don't know if it's eidetic, if that's the word that they use for those people who can recall everything from every day in their life. But I do know if I find a landmark, if I go, oh, look at that. Uh, June 3rd, 1984 was a Saturday night. Okay, what was I doing? All right, and I was probably wearing, oh, and it will all come back to me when I do it. Now, I did check certain things like the names of uh, people who were in particular plays and make sure that I had the right name and that kind of thing. But for the most part, I didn't have to do a lot of research or go look at a lot of diaries or anything like that because I've always carried that stuff around in my head and I've always had access to it. And when I'm writing or when I'm painting or whatever I'm doing, uh, that is what I'm accessing. I'm accessing memory more than I am uh, real life uh, kind of forms and things like that that I'm that I'm copying. I, I am going into my imagination. Now, how much of it is true? Uh, I think different people would have different interpretations of that. And of course, when you're writing, as soon as you start writing, you you start to put things in order. You start to give them a kind of linearity they may not have actually had. And then there were some cases where you know, especially when I started working with my editors, where they would say to me, you know, that character and that character could be one character rather than two. And this event and this event feel very similar. So can you pick which one you want or fuse them a bit? And I think it's unavoidable when you're writing something uh, 
you're not just recording it. You are bringing interpretation to it. You are bringing structure to it. You are bringing meaning to it that memory might not have. That being said, I did try to stay as honest and authentic and true, even to the point where I, I, I wrote things I didn't want to write and said things I didn't want to say because they were true rather than because they were easy or because they were pleasant to relive or whatever. What's the process when you think, oh, I don't want to open up my life completely here. Some things have to be just for me, uh, but it's a book and you're trying to be truthful and trying to tell your story. So there is a line. There is a line and it's, it's a difficult line. I did my best to be responsible to those people who are still alive, uh, who may not have wanted to appear in the book for who may not want their children, for example, to find their name connected to mine within the book and things like that. So I, um, I did change a lot of names. And I asked myself a lot of really hard questions about is this my story to tell and in the early drafts of the book there were uh, incidents and things that happened and events between myself and significant others or friends or uh, whatever that I had in the book that I had to go, I have to take this out. This isn't my story to tell. It may have affected me, but it didn't affect me enough that I feel I have any kind of ownership in it. And in a couple cases, uh, people asked me to take that story out. You know, people that I know, the few who are still alive from those days said, I really, you know, uh, some people have jobs uh, where they travel around the world and they go into different parts of the of countries that are not very open to the kind of person I am or the kind of lifestyle I am. And so in the case of where it was a, a choice between someone's privacy or me telling the story or someone's safety in me telling the story, I killed the story in order for the other person to remain safe. Now, that being said, there are probably some people who are not going to be very happy to find themselves in this book, even under the guise of another name. Right. But that's part of taking responsibility for your life and who you are too. And even though those people in me may know the truth, that doesn't mean anybody else in the world is going to know the truth as well. Interesting to be an artist with a large body of work uh, that is ongoing, but that you, you already have. How many plays have you written? How many plays and films and things? I, I it's, we're talking dozens now, we must. Be. Yeah, we're talking a great many plays. I mean, and also, the, you know, differentiating the plays that I've written and never shown anyone from the plays that I've written that got bad productions or the plays that I've written and done very well. Uh, there, It's quite a number, and I tend to uh, concentrate on the number of plays that have done very well and that have been published, but there have been a great many, I mean, a, a huge body of work. I, I, I really have written every day of my life since I was a teenager. But my, I guess where I was going with that was that it's very interesting to me to have these landmarks of your life so delineated. A play from 1984 is not a play that you would write in 2004. And you can right. go back and you've got a record that to me in some ways is more than a diary. It's more than uh, a photo album. You've got an actual uh, piece of, of yourself that you were willing to share for people and put out in the world. Uh, and, and that to me is kind of a remarkable thing that you're able to look back over that and see all these landmarks along the way. And are, do they feel like a, a personal roadmap to you of your history? Well, they do. And, and it's interesting when you ask me about, you know, how do I remember? Well, a big part of how I remember was going back and not, not reading notes or diaries, but actually looking at the plays that I was writing at the time, because some of them are very autobiographical and some of them are not, but even the ones that are not 
uh, for me, are filled with personal information that I can glean about the time by rereading the play. And I can go, oh, yes, this is based on that personality and whatever happened to them. And, oh, this was that wonderful person who I still see from time to time. Or this was something horrible somebody did to me. But it, it's interesting because it not only encapsulates my experience, but then it encapsulates the experience of producing the play and putting it up and realizing it. And so they're two very distinct processes, right? Writing is very different from mounting a play. Writing is a very personal thing. I don't share it with a lot of people. And then when you're mounting the play, particularly if you're directing it yourself, as I often do, then you, you're taking your life and putting it into a whole other kind of forum and allowing other people to collaborate on it and to cooperate with it and to uh, concentrate and, and comment on what you've been doing. And they all bring something that I may have never seen or imagined to the, to the player, to the process. And that's always really interesting. You're listening to my interview with Brad Frazier. His memoir, All the Rage, is available now wherever you buy fine books. And then there is the press. It, later in the book, you write, uh, I was a less attractive subject when my international success, which the press had previously applauded, contradicted their own negative reviews. So you had written a play that didn't get well reviewed in Canada, but did well in Britain and, and was right. doing well around the rest of the world. Uh, and you say in the book that you think it's because you appeared ungrateful as a Canadian artist that you should have been beholden to these gatekeepers, these journalists and, and, and reviewers that were writing about you. Do you think that the tall poppy syndrome uh, exists in Canada, that when you get popular and you get too popular, that all of a sudden you get your finger wagged at? Because in Canada, we are... Uh, in the rest of the world, they ask questions like, who do you want to be? Whereas the old joke is in Canada, they ask, who do you think you are? Right. Is that what I take away from this? Yeah, I think there, I mean, I think there's definitely some of that. I mean, I've always had a sort of um, uh, abrasive relationship with the press in this country, in other countries as well, but more so in this country. And I, you know, there was that feeling for me at the beginning of, oh, look, we found this poor uh, uh kid who comes from poverty who has this really great voice who's gay who's really interesting let's talk about him let's you know let's build him up but then there was a case where when I started talking particularly about the press and about the techniques of of how they work in Canada and how people get attention and how people don't and, and also who owns the press and who doesn't and who gets written about and who doesn't get written about things started to change even within the gay press and, and I really felt uh, and we're talking about Martin yesterday here, which was in 1977, which got the worst uh, the worst reviews of of my career. I mean, really destructive things were said about me personally and about the work. It should never uh, there be was, personal. Sorry, it should never be personal, and that's where reviewers cross the line often. Well, yes, but they've always been personal about my sexuality, about who I am. I mean, I think there's something that threatens people, but I also think there is a sense of we are the gatekeepers of what will be talked about in this country. And if you don't cooperate with us, then we will not let you through those gates. And, and I reached a point, I mean, frankly, around the turn of the century where I, do, I didn't really care anymore, where, where it didn't bother me at all if they weren't talking about me. And I was working mostly outside of this country anyway. But yes, to your question about tall poppy syndrome, uh, yes, we do get cut down, but also sometimes we deserve to be cut down. And I wasn't without... Uh, my own issues at the time and without my own sense of um, 
perhaps entitlement after everything I had accomplished and that kind of thing. So I don't blame it on one side or the other. I just think it's kind of a natural uh, process within any relationship that often you will get to that point. And I think if we look at the Canadian press and their treatment of certain artists in this country, we also can say there's no denying that they do after a certain point feel like you're getting too big for your britches and kind of outpacing the corporation. So we're going to bring you down a peg or two. Will you be reading reviews of the book? Reviews? When I was young, reviews used to drive me crazy. I used to put so much... Um, emphasis on them and and were they good or were they bad were they correct or were they weren't correct and I think the thing you learn after you've been in any business for a while but particularly after you've been in theater film and tv for 40 years that they don't in the long run really mean all that much they don't uh, have either the the great effect or the negative effect that you think they're going to have so will I read the reviews you know I do First of all, I do not have a problem not reading reviews, and, and that's been true throughout my career. If someone calls me and says, oh, it's really bad, don't read it, I have no problem not reading it. Uh, if someone calls me and says it's really good, but it's really badly written, don't read it, I have no problem not reading it either, because you get a lot of those as well, you know. Well, you know, when you, when you get up in the morning and uh, see a headline banging you in the uh, New York Times or in the London Times or something, one becomes used to it and also... You know, I, I had to ask myself at a really young age, okay, if you believe the good ones, are you also going to believe the bad ones? Because there's something that's not very right in that, that, that if, you know, your, your opinion is going to be, of your own work is going to be colored by what other people say about it, then you have to be really careful. Because if you do buy the bad stuff, then you do have to buy the good stuff as well. And I usually find the truth lie somewhere in between the raves and the pans that you know there's something else that goes on in there when do you know that you're done when you're writing a book like this how do you know that you've written the end the book ends on a really lovely note i won't give it away uh with a sort of a message of uplift and hope i felt when i was reading it uh, but how do you know how do you know when you've gotten to that point well, that's the question. And of course, this doesn't cover my whole life. It ends in 2000, which yes. is essentially the end of the AIDS crisis as we knew it in the 20th century. So there's a whole lot of other story that hasn't happened and that kind of thing. But for me, and, and you know, I have to say writing a book is so different than writing a play or writing a movie in terms of editing, in terms of syntax, in terms of going over and over and over it again. And, and I did that, you know, I, I had the first draft and I had to cut 100,000 words because it was far too long. So you that's know, a whole I went, book. Yeah, that yeah. was a whole other book. And I went through it and mostly the sex scenes and, and sort of the revenge stuff that ended up getting cut. And, and then I had to go through it and then I had to go through it again to proof it. And then you find all kinds of other stuff. And then I had to go through it again. And then I had to do an audio recording of it. And so I'm doing an audio recording of it and I'm actually responding to my writing and I'm wanting to go back and go, no, I want to rewrite that. And I want to rephrase that. And of course you can't do any of that then. So, you know, I, other people say this all the time, but it is absolutely true. It's over when they take it away from me and won't let me play with it or do anything to it anymore. Then it is over. And for me, that, that point never comes. And that's true of plays and TVs, TV shows and other things as well. When I look at them, look back at them, I go, oh, I want to rewrite that or I want to change that line or that moment doesn't work. But of course, you have to let it go at some point. So you're not precious about your older work. If you were to remount one of the older plays now and had a, 
a, a new idea, a new scene, a new reworking of the ideas? That, you would be it, fine with that? It happens all the time, Richard. I mean, I had, you know, there was a production of Remains that was done in Brazil a couple of years ago. And the director called me up and he said, I want to I want to restructure it. We're doing it in an old house. We're not doing it on a stage. And I want certain scenes to be with. I, I, yeah, I don't care. Go ahead. As long as you're producing it, particularly with the theater, because the thing about theater is that it is mutable. It's it's only ever trapped on a page, unlike film on television or television or whatever. You know, theater, something can happen in the world and I can walk in before the cast goes on at seven o'clock and say, hey, look, let's change that line to reflect this thing that happened today. And they can do that. So I think that is one of the uh, the great strengths of the theater and the people who go, no, it always has to be done this way. And it has to, you trap yourself in a time period and a style that may not be relevant anymore to future generations. So I'm very open to people reinterpreting my work, rewriting my work, rearranging my work, doing something interesting with it to keep it alive and vital and contemporary. My first theatrical experience was in Halifax, Nova Scotia at the Neptune Theatre. I was quite young. John Neville was the artistic director. He had come over from England and took over this smallish theatre in the provinces. And he did A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I went probably on a school trip. And the thing that made me fall in love with theatre is when they lowered Puck by a rope. And I'm sure it was very rudimentary, but they lowered him by a a rope when he does that, if we spirits have offended, think but this speech. And I was hooked. Eight years old, and it has stayed with me ever since. It's still one of my favorite things that I've ever seen on stage. And we talk about how those things reverberate. And I I grew up in Edmonton in my teenage years, and John Neville was running the Citadel Theater at the time. And I saw a production of Equus there that I write about in the book that was completely transformative for me and one of the greatest experiences I'd ever had in the theater at any time. So uh, it's interesting that, you know, we, we are similar in age. I think I'm a little older than you, but that certain personalities like John Neville, like Christopher Newton, have worked across this country and brought something really uh, concrete and wonderful to it and taught us all something and that we all share those people and those personalities. You're listening to my interview with Brad Fraser. His memoir, All the Rage, is available now wherever you buy fine books. I have to ask you about Wolf Boy uh, and working with Keanu Reeves simply because my wife, who's in the next room right now, is the world's biggest Keanu Reeves fan. Tell me, was he as nice as everyone says he is? Yeah, I mean, people have asked me that for for 35 years now. And, and, uh, you know, the truth is when I am a playwright of a play, unless it's the initial production, I'm not in rehearsal a lot. I I stay away. My job as a playwright is to write and allow the director and the actors to do their job. So I often don't interface with the creative team, except in in a very sort of quick at the beginning, hello, how are you kind of way. And at the end, a thank you very much kind of way. So I didn't spend a lot of time with Keanu, but the little time I did spend with him, and I write about this in the book because the show wasn't going very well, and the the last minute I kind of took control and started giving notes and making changes and things like that. He was a lovely young man. He He was friendly. He was doing the best he could under the circumstances, and I don't think anyone was really excelling under the circumstances. And of course, the real issue was the play. It wasn't the director, it wasn't the actors, it wasn't the designer, it was the play, and Wolf Boy is a very promising play from a young playwright, but 
it's not nearly as good as I thought it was at the time. And when I look back on Wolfwine, I look bad at that, back at that experience and how willing I was to sort of pin the blame on anyone but myself. Uh, I'm glad I, I, I grew out of that and I learned to look at, the only thing I can control is my own contribution. So therefore that's what I have to concentrate on. And, and uh, I think Keanu and you know Carl Marat and Shirley Douglas and Beverly Cooper and everybody, all the wonderful people who were in that play, would have had a better experience if they'd had a better play. There are a lot of lessons in this book. What do you hope that people take away from it? Or does it matter to you what people take away from it? Well, I mean, one can't control what people take away from it. And as you said, it touches on a lot of, if you want to read it as a gay coming out story, if you want to read it as a story of an artist coming of age in a young country, where in a new form that is really just starting to take hold, if you want to read it as a history of the AIDS crisis, they're all there. But I, I hope what people understand is that um, we're all faced with adversity. We're all faced with obstacles that are thrown down either by life or people around us or something. I had a great many obstacles. So, you know, my story is not the usual story of people who work in the theater, people who work in the arts. The class of people I'm from are generally not allowed to leave their class at all, that they stay and I should be you know, a drunken wife beating road construction worker or something like the people I grew up with are. And the only thing that got me out of there was being different and being artistic. That the only gift I was given, in fact, was gayness. The, that, that was my difference. And that was what led me out of the class of people I lived in and let me move toward a new future that people like me generally aren't allowed to take part in. So if there's one thing I want people to take away, it's the idea that you are not trapped by where you come from, wherever that is, that if you want to be something other than what you've been raised to be or what society tells you to be, you can do that. It takes a lot of hard work and people will get in your way, but if you're really determined and you really want it, you can do that. That was my interview with Brad Frazier. He's the author of a memoir called All the Rage. In addition to the book, Brad has not one, but two movies coming out. One from Canada, the other from South Korea, adapted from his play, Kill Me Now. So after you read the book, keep an eye open for those movies. You've seen my guest Chris Wilson on the current season of This Hour Has 22 Minutes. You probably also know him from Air Farce. He's one of the few people who were cast members on both Air Farce and 22 Minutes. But he's not here to talk about that today. He's here today to talk about his new podcast with his comedy partner, Peter Carloni. It's called This Time It's Different. The premise here is that each episode is completely different than the one that came before it. It might be a different genre of podcast that they do a parody of, maybe something that's already out there in the world, or maybe they'll create their own format. It's different and it's unpredictable and it's very funny. Here's Chris Wilson to talk about this time it's different. We didn't want to do a straight up like improv uh, podcast or a straight up sketch podcast. So we were just sort of like to make it different and stand out from just your everyday comedy interview. We would adopt the styles of other podcasts and sort of parody them or mimic them or a lot of it ends up being uh, Peter and I talking and then and then some sort of twist happens in the podcast like we it breaks down or something like that or 
or we just straight up rip off like WTF with Mark Marin. We did an episode like that and we've done like your murder podcasts, uh, true crime sort of things and this American life. So we just sort of, those ones are more in depth because we have to write them and parody them truly. So, so they end up being a lot more work, but yeah, that's essentially the, the premise is that we just try out all the podcast formats that there are. <laughs> And there are so many podcasts in the world. How do you kind of cut through the noise and make sure that people find yours out of the, I don't even know, 600,000 that are out there? Oh my gosh, I know. Um, Yeah, we're still trying to figure that out too. And I think that we're just trying to do the funniest. We're trying to do something that we would want to listen to, basically. So if we're just trying to be as funny as we, we can be each episode, then hopefully that uh i mean lots of people are trying to be funny as well so it's sort of like that's why we hooked on to this it was like we can just change it every time we can um make it interesting and a, a new little taste for the audience every single time to sort of try and stand out and which feels more fun to you the idea of just coming in and doing one uh, completely off the top of your head, improvising it. You were a member of Second City for a very long yeah. time. That's where that training comes from. Or the idea that you sit down and you write one and it's much more carefully planned out, which is more fun for you. They've all been sort of, so far, we've done like 25 episodes and I'd say like three or four of those we fully wrote. And that's a lot of fun because that's getting back to like me and my comedy partner would, have written several like sketch reviews and that felt fun and familiar uh, again. Um, and then but those have so much back end producing as well. So you record it and then you edit it all together. So they're more in depth. Um, those have been fun, but then it is fun to just turn on the mics and improvise and then be like, wow, we uh, did something uh, just as good quality and we just improvised it. <laughs> Maybe we should do that every time but it can't be that way, you know. (laughs) You're listening to my interview with Chris Wilson. Find his podcast, This Time It's Different, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, I mean, it's funny because when you hear people talk about improv, the way you just described it there, it sounds easy. The idea, like, we turned the microphones on and we just did it and it was just as funny as the ones yeah. we were writing. And of course, <laughs> it, it's years of training and it's years of learning the confidence to trust yourself uh, yeah. to be able to do that. Tell me a little bit about uh, just the idea of finding the confidence to turn a microphone on and be funny in front of it with not a lot of prior planning. Yeah, it, it's it's sort of like, because Peter and I have been working together for like 15 years now. So there's sort of like a shorthand that we have anyway. Um, And we were going to do another like big tour last year. And then of course that sort of all went away for the obvious reasons. Uh, So we sort of put that energy into this podcast. And I, I do feel like there is that natural, um, that chemistry that we have that, been over 15 years sort of does translate to the podcast and it's just fun to like riff with him again i imagine that improvising in front of just a microphone 
is different than improvising in front of an audience. There's sort of something freeing about just being in your basement with a microphone and over a Zoom call that there's no pressure. Like the idea that if it's not good, we don't have to put it out. Like that, that comfort uh, does make for better improv in some ways. Like we're not like censoring ourselves or judging what we're saying because it's not getting laughs in the moment. You just sort of like follow a through line and and see what happens and no one's judging it but you and and him at the moment so in some ways it is easier uh than having an audience not laugh at you and then you spiral out and you're like and you have a <laughs> anxious moment of like i'm not funny what am i doing why am i doing this how does uh, Zoom fit into all of this? You talk about you recording these via Zoom. Um, I know for Second City, uh, when it because it, it's been open and closed, and things have changed a little bit over the last year, as they have with every restaurant and bar and you know theater oh, yeah. and everything else in town or in the country or in North America and the world probably even. Yeah. Uh, but you were rehearsing over Zoom um, for some of yeah. those shows, and I, I, I. I I don't know. It just, it feels different. It has to feel different when you're working that way rather than just when you're all on the stage together. Yeah, fully. It just, when we were doing those second city rehearsals over zoom, like not to just like even sugarcoat it, it was just, it wasn't good. Like it, there's not much in terms of productivity coming out of those rehearsals. Like it's just so like disconnected. Uh, it, it's hard to do anything really other than just like talk about what we're gonna do you can't test out material over zoom so that was tough for sure and then once we were finally able to get back even with a limited audience in the summer we had you know we're allowed to perform for like 20 to 30 people even that just like immediately is like oh yeah this is the way to do it you're testing out material in front of 30 people it's still you're still performing it and then you get that immediate reaction and then you know and you can write that's how you write at second city you test out material in front of the audience so so it was kind of hard to do that when you had just the void of a zoom call and just you're guessing what's what's good and what's bad where can I find this time it's different the podcast there's 25 episodes so far where can we find it yeah you can get it pretty much wherever you get your podcasts mm -hmm. uh Spotify Apple just type in this time it's different with Peter and Chris I think it'll probably come up if you just type in this time it's different this time this time this time this time it's different that was Chris Wilson along with Peter Carloni he is part of the comedy duo Peter and Chris you can find their podcast, This Time It's Different, on Spotify and Apple, wherever it is that you normally listen to your podcast. Check it out. Google it. It will be there. And it's really funny. It's worth a listen. This time, this time, this time, this time, it's different. Big thanks to Chris Wilson. Also, a huge thanks to Brad Frazier for stopping by. His memoir is called All the Rage. It is candid. It is revealing. Uh, it's fascinating reading. It is a page turner, and you can find it wherever you buy fine books so big thanks to brad as always though my biggest thanks goes to you for listening i'm richard krauss stay happy stay healthy stay safe and we'll talk again soon